Hello, everybody, and welcome to Taking Control, the ADHD podcast on True Story FM. I'm Pete Wright, and right over there is Nikki Kinzer. Hello, everyone. Hello, Pete Wright. Happy 501. Happy what? 501. What's 501? This is episode 500. Oh, <laughs> I had no idea what you were talking about. I'm like, 501. <laughs> Yes. We had our big party yesterday I, and as we record this. Yeah, and it's no. already forgotten. Those <laughs> are the five. I'm, you've got the 501 blues. I'm what? moving on to, yeah, I'm, I'm working on our 600th episode right now. <laughs> all right. That all makes sense now. Uh, that all makes sense. Sure. It's all fine. We, we've got a conversation. This is, I think it's safe to say this has been, uh, this conversation is long awaited. Wouldn't you agree? It is because it's something that, you know, when we are asked about medication, our standard response is go ask a doctor, ask yeah, an expert. Yeah. We don't know. We're not we're not the ones to, to ask. So yeah. it's so nice to be able to not only ask our questions that we have, but ask all of our listeners questions that they have and have an expert who is so willing to talk about it so freely. And we've got quite a list of questions to go through. Now, who is that expert? Oh, dear, Nikki. It's it's Bill Dodson. It's Bill yes, Dodson. It Did you? It's I mean, Dr. I know. Bill I know. I, I say that as if I was going to surprise you. But I you I already, already know that, it, that already Dr. Knew. Bill Dodson is back. <laughs> uh, you may know Dr. Bill Dodson because he's the guy who introduced all of us to the concept of RSD. Uh, he's rejection pretty famous. Sensitive our, dysphoria. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he is. He's a what I like to call a, a luminary. Uh, mm -hmm. a real thought leader. Mm -hmm. um, he and is. he's just an all around nice guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we sure love that he is willing to consider this a place, a platform for him to come and talk and share those insights and to grace us with his expertise with for all of your questions. So we hope we got them all. If you have more questions, please post them uh, in show talk and we will keep a list for the next time Dr. Bill Dodson comes back to talk to us. But for today, uh, what do you say? We should we should probably get started. Uh, Absolutely. Dr. Bill, before we do that, head over to TakeControlADHD.com. You can get to know us a little bit better. You can listen to the show right there on the website or subscribe to the mailing list uh, on the homepage, and we'll send you an email each time a new episode is released. You can connect with us on Twitter or Facebook at TakeControlADHD. And if this show has ever touched you, if it's helped you make a change in your life with ADHD for the better, please consider supporting the show at Patreon.com slash The ADHD Podcast. Patreon is for us. Us, listener supported podcasting. You join, you support the show at a tier of your choice. You get some goodies in the back end, but you also know that you are supporting us continuing to make choices with our time and our uh, sweat toward this show, toward building new resources for the show and building new resources for this community. Our Discord community is a great example. Transcripts are a great example. Having transcripts, human powered transcripts for every episode. That is a product of support from our patrons directly. So for everyone who uh, is in, is interested in investing in this show, patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. It's an amazing, amazing community you will be joining. And for our purposes, it keeps, it is the lifeblood of this show. Uh, patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. And now, Dr. Bill Dodson.
Everybody, we are so excited to have our guest back on the show. You remember RSD, do you? Huh? We're sure you do because you told us as much. Uh, and the guy who introduced that topic to us and to this community is here, Dr. William Dodson. He is an award-winning board-certified psychiatrist and specialist in adult ADHD. He has been on the faculty at a number of different university uh, medical schools, and uh, now he's retired but working more than ever. Bill, welcome back to the ADHD podcast. <laughs> Good to be here. Uh, we're talking about drugs today. Yes, medication. We are very excited to have this conversation, uh, not the le- for, for, for many reasons, not the least of which that Nikki and I are wildly ill-equipped to answer some of the questions that yes. we get uh, from our community. And so we're very excited. We've actually collected questions from the from our, our listenership to uh, to share with you and, and get your insights on. But to, to start us off, um, why don't you talk a little bit about standards and practices and, and procedures for prescribing medication for somebody we have uh, in the in the world now uh, seven international standards of care and this is one of the things they all agree on is that medications are the treatment of choice period uh, it's what you ought to try before you try anything else of course in the real world it's exactly the reverse uh, people have tried everything under the sun before they come to see me Uh, because people are so very ambivalent about the medications. Most of this is based on um, uh, ignorance. Um, And here is the physicians who are ignorant. They they don't have the information to talk to the patients and lay their fears. These are some of the safest medications that ever came to the market, but you would never know it. Right. Um, Ned Hallowell's new book, he has a chapter uh, on the chapter on medication, the wonderful medica- medications, the wonderful drugs uh, we love to fear. The attitude of the country, actually the world, it is really kind of reversed again. Um, the belief is that it's the treatment of ADHD that's risky, not the disorder itself. Hmm. And so people are always worried that you know, what if this? What if that? What if this? Um, the choice of at least trying medications ought to be easy mm-hmm. because they're incredibly safe. They've been around for 80 years. Uh, to tell you how safe they are, they're approved down to the age of three. So we can give them to little kids. They're approved for pregnant women. That tells you how safe they are. Um, but you would never know that because people come in and they're worried to death. Uh, and they go back and forth and back and forth. The, the average person, when they come into my office, has been thinking about trying medication for two years mm-hmm. before they pick up the phone and call me. What are what are they fearing? A lot of times they don't know. They they have a lot of beliefs that they're not quite conscious of. Uh, one almost universal belief is that this is a permanent decision. Uh, trying medication. If you try medication, you can't go back. If you're committed to medication forever. And I tell people, look, you know, these are just trials. Try it, see what it has to offer you, get some real experience, then make a decision about whether medications are for you or mm-hmm. not. I tell most of my patients, I said, 
This is not a permanent decision. We're not talking about putting a tattoo on your child's face. Right. <laughs> you, you can always change mm-hmm. your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I remind people of is that it's not one drug at one dose for everybody all the time. You're going to have to actively participate with your clinician to find the right medication for you as a unique individual, the right dose, the right timing of dose. Nobody buys off the rack. Everybody has to have the medications tailored to them as a unique individual. Do you find that you run into that a lot where people will be like, well, ADHD medication doesn't work for me because I tried Adderall and it made me feel bad? If somebody says Mm -hmm. that, I said, well, you you need to, first of all, uh, forgive the physicians of the United States because for a long time, we didn't know what the hell we were doing (laughs) and we tended to overdose Mm -hmm. people. Uh, the rule, capital T, capital R, the rule is that if you have the right medication at the right dose, you should see dramatic improvement without side effects. Mm. So I tell people what you should expect from the stimulants especially is a reaction that I call the wow reaction. Uh, It should be life-changing. And if it's not life-changing, you shouldn't settle. You should go to the other stimulant medication. Interesting. So they, they should be dramatically effective and essentially without side mm-hmm. effects. That's, that's a, I think, a, a really important caveat. And once again, Bill, you've said something that introduced a concept to me that is a, a little bit mind-blowing. It's, this, it's that third conceit that you should experience this without side effects. Therefore, if you are experiencing side effects, you haven't asked why enough. Right. And you need to go down on the dose. Okay. Oh, interesting. Uh, the dose response curve, if we get a technical term here, I can actually show it to you if you want. Just draw an upside down V. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you increase the dose, you see a nice linear improvement. Each dose, you're getting better and better and better up to a point. We call it the sweet spot. And at that dose, you're getting 100% of what medication has to offer and no side effects. Again, as you see the increase in, in medication, you get to the sweet spot, which is where a person with ADHD will have the same attention span and impulse control as anybody else. No better, no worse. Uh, but the playing field is level for the first time in your life. Mm-hmm. Which is why you have that wow factor then. Right. Mm-hmm. On the left side of the curve, there should be no side effects. On the right side of the curve, you should pick up side effects. And there are two types. Uh, little kids uh, get what's called the zombie syndrome. Um, that's both the slang and the term that's used in the textbooks. And the kid just absolutely slows down, loses facial expression. Uh, kids are no longer disruptive, and the teacher's delighted, but he's also semi-brain dead. He's not learning. He's just not disruptive any longer. Uh, adults tend to get the exact opposite. It's called Starbucks syndrome. So imagine what you'd be like if you wandered out of Starbucks after four double espressos. Uh, you'd be revved up, your heart would be beating fast, you'd have a hand tremor, um, you'd have a headache, you wouldn't be able to sleep. Again, all the things we associate with too much caffeine. 
So if you're having side effects, the dose is too high. So I have a question about this. Uh, My daughter is 16 and she was diagnosed with ADHD and we started her on Adderall. And she said that it helped um, her focus, but she didn't feel like herself. So she didn't like to to take it. And then it's too high. Okay. So that's what you're saying here. All right. Now, again, the, the goal should be the best version of you. Right. You should feel exactly the same as you always did. Your personality shouldn't be changed, but you should be performing at your very best all the time. Mm-hmm. So again, so if, if it changes you, if, if you start a sentence with, I don't like, it's- you either have the wrong molecule or the wrong dose. If you took a hundred people just off the street with ADHD, and you started them with amphetamine, the way your daughter was, mm-hmm. Adderall. Seventy percent of them are going to go, "Wow, where have you been all my life?" Mm-hmm. But that also means that thirty percent are going to try it, either they're not tolerated or just not see much in the way of benefits. Mm-hmm. At that point, you try the other molecule, methylphenidate. And 70% of people will respond to methylphenidate, but it's a different 70%. So if you end up having to try both molecules, you end up with about 85% of people having a life-changing level of response. Now, that still leaves 15% of people, which is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's one in every seven who will try both medications and either not tolerate them or uh, just not see much in the way of benefits. Again, as with many things, there's absolutely nothing in the literature that would tell a clinician what to do for that 15%. It's absolutely silent. So I can tell you what clinicians do, but there's no backing for it. Well, you you make sure that the the diagnosis is correct, first of all. Right, okay. if it is, then you want to make sure that it's being absorbed. If the person says, I don't see anything, I don't see benefits or side effects, it could well be that it's not being absorbed. Uh, neither one of these molecules will be absorbed into the body. If you take it with citric acid or vitamin C, ascorbic acid, uh, both methylphenidate and amphetamine are strong bases. So if you wash it down with something that's acidic, mm-hmm. uh, precipitates out. You may have swallowed your medication, but all you're going to get out of that dose is high octane. Mm, uh, so you need to you need to separate taking the dose from fruit juices, sodas, and then the big one is vitamins. Yeah, a lot of people just for convenience sake uh, will take their vitamins or give their you know the kid the gummy vitamins and stuff like that. At the same time, they take their ADHD medication and they end up sabotaging them. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, that's I w- interesting. That was actually the first question in the chat room today, which was, uh, "Can you talk about the citric acid issue? So, how long should they wait after uh, after taking their meds before they have that glass of orange juice?" I tell my patients wait an, an hour. hour. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or better still, take your uh, vitamins at night before you go to bed. Oh. Uh, they're better absorbed at night anyway. Um, you'll get more out of the vitamins if you take. Now, of course, you would time. not be taking your your ADHD medications at night before you go to bed. So, well, you, you'd be surprised. About sixty percent of my patients take a dose of stimulant at bedtime hmm. uh, because they sleep so fascinating. 
Uh, if, if, for instance, you ask somebody about their sleep, tell me about your sleep. People will, about 80% of people uh, with ADHD will say, well, I don't even bother getting into bed until two or three in the morning because I know if I do, I'll toss and turn and my thoughts will bounce from one concern and worry to another. I spend two hours every night um, trying to shut my brain and yep. body off to go to yep. sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I relate. Uh, once I do fall asleep, I continue to toss and turn, get the covers off. Nobody can stay in the same bed with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're seeing is that when the hyperactivity of ADHD dims down in adolescence, it doesn't go away. It shifts to the nighttime and for some reason uh, becomes tied to sunset. Um, and so you'll hear from, from people with ADHD, when the sun goes down and it gets fully dark, everybody else is getting quiet and ready for bed. I get a burst of energy and it's the best time of the day for me. And I know if I get into bed, I'm not going to sleep anyway. Yeah. So most people with ADHD are night owls. Mm-hmm. And so the cause of the insomnia is the hyperarousal of ADHD. Okay. So if you treat the ADHD, the person sleeps normally. You can focus on a, sleep. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just focus on nothing. Yeah, right. Now that's a hard. Skill. Right, I can imagine. I mean, somebody's already you know, up for two hours, and here I am. I'll tell you, I want you to take a, a nice, a nice dose, dose of stimulant, dose of right? right. <laughs> so you can sleep. Uh, I mean, they're usually polite because I'm the doctor. Sure. And, you know, but you can tell by looking at <laughs> their face, they think I'm crazy. So what we do is we really, really fine tune the dose. And then on a day when they can, I ask them while they're on their medication to lie down after lunch and take a nap. Most people with ADHD will say, I've never napped in my life. That's a waste of time. I said, give it a try. On medication, you can nap. And indeed, 99% of them, because they're sleep deprived, um, nap just fine. Once they've proven to themselves in a no-risk trial nap that they sleep great, then they're much more likely uh, to be willing to give it a try um, to see if it helps them with sleep. And it does virtually always. Uh, wow. So let's, just, let's just say that I'm wrong. It's happened. Uh, <laughs> for, for people who are taking amphetamine products, amphetamine products have an off switch. And it's the reverse of the absorption thing. If somebody takes 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, it will pull all the amphetamine out of the body into the urine in about 20 minutes. Mm. So you can just completely get rid of the dose of amphetamine with vitamin C. Mm. So if if you know they try a dose of amphetamine at bedtime and they can't sleep, take a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, 20 yeah. minutes later, they're back to themselves. Yeah, interesting. What so I what do a, have a question. what a body hack. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm right? learning yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, then, then the real work begins, convincing your doctor to give you another dose per day. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, that's tricky. Right. Well, and that, that actually leads us to this big question, which is, and I, in case there are any folks out there who don't know or who haven't been asking the question, you know, why isn't this one working for me? Can you give us a, a brief on the differences between controlled medications and amphetamines yeah. and non-controlled medications? Um, you know, we're talking, we've, we've been talking about Adderall, Concerta, Stratera, 
uh, you know, but it's you... the non-stimulant ones yeah. that I'm really interested in too, because that's what my okay. daughter's doctor did. Is she said, "Okay, well, we'll get you off of Adderall and we'll put you on Stratera." Okay, and I don't know if that's helping. Um, let's let's just start with the whole notion of comparing these medications in terms of how well do they actually work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in medicine, we uh, measure that with a statistical calculation called effect size. And that's exactly what it says. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's more math than I can do, but it's a, a ratio. How well does this treatment work as compared to all the others we might have tried? So just about everything in medicine falls in the range between 0.4 and 1. 1 is really quite robust. The stimulants, if you try both molecules, you fine-tune it, you don't stop at the completely artificial maximums in the FDA, and you let the dose go up to where it's really optimized, um, you're going to get an effect size of about 1.7, 1.8, which is better than anything else in medicine. That's the scientific equivalent of wow, <laughs> uh, better than anything else in medicine. Um, if you uh, stop where the uh, FDA uh, stopped looking and look at their maximums, you're going to get an effect size of about 0.95. Pretty good yeah. still. If you try the second line medications, which are the alpha agonists, and you find one that works for you, and that's about 60% of people, um, you're going to get a very good response there, about a 1.2. Again, much better than anything else in medicine. Uh, Stratera uh, and Quelbury are non-stimulants. And so uh, their effect size um, in, in children is much better than it is in adults. Mm. The child studies are coming in at about 0. 0.6. Uh, 0.7, I think there's one at 0.7 for kids, but for adults, it's down at about 0.44, which for adults means barely detectable, but consistently detectable in about half of people. So the uh, non-stimulants do not work well for adults. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it's the difference between a 0.7, which is, again, a better score than our antidepressants and stuff like that. So it's still pretty good. Mm -hmm. 1.2 or 1.8. So there's that, that's sort of the mathematical backing of first line, second line, and alternative medications. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think I, I just don't have that many people on, um, on the non-stimulants uh, because I can, I can work around yeah. Where Again, does Wellbutrin fall? Because I've heard that come up in conversations before, too. Uh, Wellbutrin is the drug that a doctor who's scared of the stimulants uses. Okay. Um, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a, there's one study that shows barely detectable benefit. Uh, the reason they're using Wellbutrin is that it's made out of amphetamine. Mm. Um uh, it's the that's what they start with, and they put a chloride ion on it and stuff like that. So I said, why not give it a try? Mm -hmm. 
in order to be effective, uh, you have to get the dose up to four or 500 milligrams, where the usual maximum dose is only 300. Uh, and you will get, in some people, a detectable level of benefit. But again, it's down about 0.4. I see. Barely detectable. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a drug that, you know, you're going to write home about. Right, right. Um, yeah. Interesting. So uh, the, when you get into those alternative medications, most of them are not worth the mm -hmm. hassle. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. You mentioned earlier that ADHD medication is safe for pregnant women. I didn't know that. I thought they tended yeah. to stay away from it. Um, again, it's because fear. people feel <laughs> yeah. fear. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, if to your to your listeners, if you have a concern about these medications, mm -hmm. somebody else has too, and it's been studied six or seven times. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's uh, ADHD and the medications used to treat it have been controversial their entire existence. Uh, and so uh, the things that people are concerned about um, have been studied. Mm -hmm. uh, with the uh, uh, stimulants in pregnant women, um, these were uh, people who were not just uh, using pharmaceutical-grade amphetamine or methylphenidate. They were also using methamphetamine. They were polydrug abusers and stuff like that. And just there wasn't any problem they detected. Mm. Uh, there was no problem with getting pregnant, staying pregnant. There's no problem with the delivery. Uh, there weren't any birth defects. There weren't any postpartum uh, difficulties. Again, everybody expected something awful to have crack babies and all this. It didn't happen. And it was kind of, eh, <laughs> nothing happened. Um, so it's a decision that the mom and dad make together. Right. Um, I, can, I can tell you the pattern in my own practice is that if it's the first child, usually the woman goes off of medication at least for the first trimester, mm -hmm. uh, and then about half go back on. For the second pregnancy, where they have a hyperactive little kid running around the house, yeah, yeah. everybody's everybody's on meds. <laughs> yeah, we're like, we really need yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just you know, they're they're practical. Uh, they they stay on the medication the whole time. Um, so I want to wrap back around the fear piece, not with with pregnancy, but around addiction, because I think that that's part of where we see the fear. So much and, baggage. Uh, so much baggage. Well, there is. And yeah. I mean, I'm not going to call it out, but there was a do documentary that was just so irritating because they were talking about the yeah. addiction of, of ADHD meds. And I'm just curious from your point of view, like what what's going on here? Like, can somebody with ADHD get addicted to stimulant drugs? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Is it likely? Highly unlikely. And people already know this. If you uh, talk to somebody, just a civilian out there, um, and you say, what do you know about uh, the ADHD stimulants? Um, you're going to get the same history that people don't stick with them. Um, half of people don't fill the, the third prescription. Hmm. You know, if the dose is slightly too high, people hate how they feel. They don't get high. It's not pleasant. 
uh, your daughter complained about, I don't like how this makes me feel. Mm -hmm. So there's no real reason to abuse these medications. They don't feel good. They're expensive. They're hard to get. Um, if you contrast that with drugs of abuse, they're exactly the opposite. People take them because they feel good. They like how they feel on them. Uh, those drugs become very compelling and they, they want to take more, they increase their dose, they get tolerance and they raise their dose. Tolerance doesn't develop with ADHD medication. I was going to ask you about that. We need to, we, okay, keep going, but we need to expand on yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and so what you get is the person goes, well, yeah, I mean, the drugs for ADHD and the drugs that people abuse are exactly the opposite. Uh, where, did, where did we get this notion? Because people didn't make any distinction at all between amphetamine and methamphetamine. Um, for the first 40 years, these medications were on the market. They were over-the-counter medications. You could walk into any pharmacy and buy them off the shelf. They were used to treat asthma. Uh, then after World War II, uh, there were, Every nation, every army had huge stockpiles of amphetamine and methylphenidate that they gave to the soldiers to, to stay away. They got dumped onto the market. And there was some problems um, uh, in Sweden of mixing amphetamine with uh, poor grade heroin. Um, there was never a single case of somebody who abused just amphetamine or just methylphenidate, not a one. So uh, the response in the United States was, let's take these over-the-counter medications and put them in Schedule 4, which is the least restrictive category. And there they sat for 20 years. Then came the 19, early 1970s, and the nation suddenly discovered drug abuse. Uh, cocaine, marijuana, uh, it became a national scourge. And in response, uh, the DEA said, uh, we're going to ban um, uh, methamphetamine and we're gonna ban anything that might be made into methamphetamine. So that's how amphetamine and methylphenidate got into schedule two. Trouble is they never slowed down to ask a chemist, can you make methamphetamine out of amphetamine? And the answer is you can't. Mm -hmm. You make methamphetamine out of Sudafed, which they left on the shelves for another 20 yes. years. Mm -hmm. We measure progress with the DEA in terms of 20-year increments. Um, but that's when you may have noticed if you yeah. wanted Sudafed, you had to go and ask the pharmacy. Yeah, for it. yeah. So uh, basically, these medications just got wrapped up in um, an overreaction um, because of other drug abuse. Um, well, people will say, well, you know, everybody at college uses Adderall to study with. Well, when you actually look at it, and yes, they've looked at it 20 times, uh, what you find is that on, if you average them all together, everybody turns out to be somewhere between 6 and 8% of people. <laughs> That's not that's oh, not as many as everybody. That in, let me check no. my math. No, that's not as many as yeah. everybody. They, yeah, they use them uh, because they have some magical beliefs that's going to help them 
um, with some sort of performance enhancement for tests, uh, which of course they have absolutely no ability to do mm -hmm. unless you have ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, but what we know is that people who uh, misuse and abuse these medications regularly fit a very narrow demographic. They are white, male, fraternity members who were already alcoholic when they got to college and they use the stimulants so they can stay awake and drink more. It's mm. exceedingly rare to have uh, women, Blacks, Hispanics, or Asians misuse these medications. It's a white male phenomenon. Again? Wow. It's uh, another interesting. one. Interesting. Oh. Uh, hmm. uh, and it's almost entirely an immediate release uh, delivery system phenomenon. Uh, people don't, I mean, if they're out to get a pop from these medications, they don't want something that's very gradual, like yeah. you know, the time release right. stuff. They want the immediate release. So most docs, um, if they have a college student or high school student come in and they're insistent upon um, immediate release medication, we go, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, red flag. <laughs> yeah. Red yeah. flag. Red flag, red flag. So, uh, so. why do doctors, because this still happens. I had somebody, in fact, we got in this conversation earlier this week in a group coaching, uh, co coaching group that I have. And I told them we were, I was going to ask the specific question to you. One, one person's doctor said, take at least one day off of your ADHD medication so you don't build up a tolerance. That was said this week. Is that, what is that about? I, I don't know. It's, it's wrong. Um, tolerant, people will get tolerant to any side effects in a matter of a day or two. Um, feeling jittery, loss of appetite, that sort of thing. They'll get tolerant to the side effects, but not to the benefits. So there's a, a line in all of the uh, standards of care that say these medications don't develop tolerance. People will create a tolerance, uh, if you will, um, by their magical beliefs. Again, uh, there are a lot of people that believe that more is always better. Mm. And so they'll just keep on increasing the dose. Um, the body will adjust to it. They won't feel jittery and buzz. So they'll increase the dose again. Mm -hmm. And they'll get they'll be kind of revved up. And because they believe uh, if they're not feeling the, body, the 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 jitteriness, then it must not be doing anything. Exactly. And so what they do is they push themselves over the side of the curve and it no longer works anymore just because the dose is too high. Again, it's what people's false beliefs create the problem. Well, and uh, less is more. Less is more. And it's interesting because I remember this conversation happening in Discord too, where somebody said, well, I was recommended to, to take the weekends off of the medication and just use it for work. And then somebody else popped up and said, but why is home stuff not as important as work? And don't you want to be at your highest at home, not, you know, at your best yeah. self at home too. And I thought that was an interesting point. And I'm glad you're bringing this up because yeah. it's okay to take ADHD medication every day. Absolutely. And 24 hours a day, because mm -hmm. again, about 60% of my patients were taking medication so they could sleep normally. The, the problem here is that the stubborn clog in the pipe, 
are the physicians. We've got plenty of good products out there that uh, people can take. We've got plenty of people who need them. The problem is physicians are not trained. Um, in my residency, ADHD was never mentioned once, not once. Um, and it's still that way. 93% of adult psychiatry residencies don't mention ADHD at all, even though 20% of the people that walk in a psychiatrist's office are going to have ADHD. It's just intentionally neglected. Uh, when the American Academy of Pediatrics put out its guidelines two years ago, um, they said, these are great guidelines. The problem is half of pediatricians have never been exposed to the topic of ADHD. They know nothing about it and don't want to know. Mm -hmm. um, so finding yourself a doctor who wants to know, who wants to be good at this um, is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. uh, go. The best thing to do is go to your local CHAD meeting or the NADDA. Talk to people who have been through this before. They can tell you who's good, who's not. Um, that, that's the best way to find somebody. Uh, virtually everybody out there had to be self-taught. Um, ADHD does not have a textbook. Right. So if a doctor said, I want to get hot with ADHD, no textbook for them to go look at. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why most of the docs who do a lot of ADHD work um, are that way for one of two reasons. Either they have ADHD themselves or they've got a family member with ADHD who got terrible care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to put in the thousand hours it takes to teach yourself. Well, it's interesting. I mean, because it's not even just the medication. My daughter would have been missed if it wasn't me knowing that we needed to keep at it. Yeah. You know, the doctor, primary doctor, oh, she doesn't have ADHD. She's fine. Teachers uh -huh. didn't think she had ADHD. She's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, the, the, the very first piece of research on females with ADHD was published in 2000. Wow. Just 20 years just ago. 20 Up years until ago. then, the, uh, the orthodoxy was that it was strictly a male condition, mm -hmm. that women did not get ADHD. Their experience of it is very different from men uh, because most women are not overtly hyperactive. Uh, they tend to be daydreamers. Um, they don't disrupt um, the classroom. So you'll hear the slang of noisy ADHD and silent ADHD. And really they're talking about males and females. The girls sit in the back uh, of the class. They don't disrupt. Uh, and culturally, we just don't have the same expectations of females that we do of males. Um, mm -hmm. What's the line? The um, Definite bias. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the subtle prejudice uh, we, uh, of, of low expectations. Right in the heart. Okay. I, uh, we, we've been talking a lot about symptoms, and I just want, we have one of, one of our questions from the community specifically related to uh, someone with a heart condition. Are there ADHD meds that work for a person with a mild heart condition? Stimulants like Adderall seem to be contraindicated. Okay. Your take. Um, the FDA, um, the, the people in the neuroscience division, are absolutely sure that these medications are cardiotoxic. Uh, the thing is, in 40 years, they just haven't been able to find 
any evidence whatsoever <laughs> to support that belief. Okay. That doesn't stop them at all. So they've done uh, three very large epidemiological studies, 7.2 million people. And what they found was taking stimulus did not raise your risk of cardiovascular disease one bit, not at all. Um, wow. They're... Um, they have a black box warning based on uh, pretty old data now. It's back in the 60s and 70s of 20 children who died while they were being prescribed stimulant medications. And as you can imagine, uh, when a child dies, uh, it get off, gets autopsy. It gets looked at very closely. Not a single one of the children did uh, the ADHD medication had any role whatsoever. In fact, half of the kids weren't taking the medications, which is also yet another problem. Um, so that's still in there. Once you know, once something gets into the uh, PDR, it never leaves. Um, there are numbers. Well, yeah, and I can imagine as soon as you start feeling the shakes and you feel your heart beat fast, yeah. like all of a sudden it's it doesn't take a very large leap to get from there and this rumor of studies where kids died to yeah. to develop a belief system. Um, yeah, and, and the thing is, we we go, oh my gosh, when we hear the problems, we don't then go and say, okay, but following that, they looked at all this, studied it, and they found no connection. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, the, the thing called SUUD, sudden unexplained, unexpected death. Um, and it's, uh, there's a background rate, uh, about three uh, children per 100,000 will just die for no apparent reason each year. It's tragic, nobody knows mm -hmm. why. Uh, in adults, it's about eight per 100,000. Um, it runs in families. Uh, so this is the one where you hear, you know, Uncle Frank, you know, died of a heart attack when he was 30, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. the, the slang for it is the U and D syndrome. Some people just up and die. Um, mm -hmm. What they found was that uh, taking the stimulant medications for ADHD had a strongly protective effect. It lowered the rate of suddenly dying for no apparent reason. Um, there are about wow. 10 wow. studies of using these medications for children uh, with congenital heart defects. And as long as you fine tune the medication and you the heart rate doesn't increase, the blood pressure doesn't increase, what all 10 studies show, you can still use the first line medications um, and the kids do well. Uh, so again, mm -hmm. it's just do a simple blood pressure and pulse rate. Um, if you've gone past the sweet spot, the diastolic pressure, the second or lower number, will suddenly pop up 10 to 15 points. It's the canary in the mine shaft. So that's, that's the very first side effect. So with my patients, I got a blood pressure and pulse rate at every visit. Right, um, right. So I'm curious because we've had a lot of questions that I know that have been uh, tossed your way. I want to know from you, what do you think is important for our listeners to know about medication? What what kinds of things have you experienced that you think is important that they know? The first thing they need to know is that after um, 70 years of research, all of the risks 
are associated with non-treatment, not with treatment. It's the fact that you have a 400% increase in automobile accidents, 400% increase in substance use disorders, uh, tenfold increase in unwed out of uh, uh, unplanned uh, pregnancy. Um, you just go on and on. An eightfold increase mm -hmm. dropping out of school before getting a high school diploma. Just you, you find any malady of the human condition and not treating ADHD will quadruple your risk of bad outcome. Uh, there's, no, there's just no risk with taking the medications. Um, so, gosh. Makes you think you should, you know, maybe at least consider trying if if, it, if so, it's an issue. Kind of yeah. Confront your fears. Try the medication with somebody who knows mm -hmm. what they're doing. And once you have real personal information, then make your decision. You know, I, but, you know, you can decide not to take medication. I, I don't care uh, what what decision you make, but at least make it on reality and facts. Mm -hmm. um, second thing is mm -hmm. find a doc who will help you fine tune the medication. Most people can tell the difference of three milligrams of medication, high or low. So fine tune, fine tune, fine tune. Right molecule. How, how right long dose. would you expect? How long would you expect the the fine tuning process to take to find that sweet spot okay. for you? Um, again, because I did nothing but ADHD, I would. Uh, considerably more aggressive than, than most people, but I would do two medication trials, one on amphetamine, one on uh, methylphenidate, and have them back in two weeks. You can do two tri a trial in a week with the stimulants wow. because they're immediately effective in an hour. What you see at one hour yeah. is everything they're going to do, all the benefits, all the side effects. So you can just boom, 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 just right on up. Uh, with the alpha agonists, it takes about two weeks to do a single trial. Um, because long story why, but when you change the dose, it takes about five days for you to see the benefits develop. With the sure. um, non-stimulants, a trial takes about six to eight weeks because those very gradually uh, increase. Uh, sort of like the antidepressants, they take uh, eight to 10 weeks to fully develop. Right. So it depends on which medication mm -hmm. you're taking, how quickly it can be done. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But you should uh, not settle for anything less than wow. Uh, I, I have never in 42 years worth of practice had somebody say, Gee, I'm glad I waited that extra decade before starting medication. What you hear yeah. almost 100% is what would my life have been like if I had known about this when I was back in school? My yeah. life would have been yeah. so different. And you almost get a period of, after that first elation of, wow, I finally figured out what's going on with my life. You know, most people will go into a period of mourning, really. What would my life have been mm -hmm. like? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, especially with older people, uh, you get another burst of energy. It's sort of, well, time is wasted. 
you know, I've wasted all this time. I'm not going to waste another moment. And they go off and have a very rich and active life. But they need to go through that period mm-hmm. of the morning of why didn't I try this years ago? Another, we've got, I, I just want to make sure I catch the the other sort of random questions that we've gotten here too. Um, we've talked about, I, I have a feeling I know your answer on this. Is there anything we should think about in terms of exercising? Any risks with exercising while taking a stimulant? If you drink coffee, if you drink colas, um, mm-hmm. you're going to get the same amount of stimulation that you would get from your ADHD medication. Uh, they, these are okay. people are somehow, you know, thinking in terms of, you know, a speed freak who comes in across the ceiling. Yeah. Um, it's, okay. it's a, you know, when you go slightly past your sweet spot, yeah, you feel a little racy, like you had one too many coffees. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Is it possible to be on a stimulant medication for a long period of time, let's say over 10 years, and find it's no longer working? Is that a, uh, is, is that a thing? It is exceedingly rare. In 42 years of practice, I had six cases like that. And it's usually uh, the person just wakes up one morning and their medication is not working. Not working at all. They can raise the uh, dose. They can eat it like chiclets out of a candy dish. And it's just not working. There are a couple of theories about why that happens. Uh, if you stop the medication for about two weeks and then restart, you're back. It's working again. Uh, <laughs> okay, you just need to kick it. Uh, well, just uh, you know, just, uh, I'm not sure. And yeah, we just chose two weeks out of the air. Not not yeah. magical. Yeah, right. yeah, right. Uh, Could be anything. Yeah, but uh, it will restart again. It's, it's very rare to happen. It happens suddenly. Um, the other place where it happens is women going through menopause. Um, estrogen mm-hmm. is absolutely necessary for the ADHD stimulants to work well. Um, uh, and so you'll hear from women, um, uh, women with ADHD will have premenstrual dysphoric disorder, what is the new term for PMS, much more severely, much more frequently than women who don't have ADHD. And they will find that the five days right before their menstrual flow, their ADHD stimulant doesn't work worth a hoot. And they can raise the dose, they can try all sorts of stuff, doesn't, doesn't change. As soon as they have the menstrual flow and estrogen gets produced again, it works again. And so what we found is that you don't need physiologic levels of estrogen, which are three to 400. Uh, 125 to 150 nanograms per milliliter um, is enough for um, stimulant medications to work perfectly well. So you see it in that five days before the menstrual flow and in postmenopausal women. Um, They'll come in and say, my ADHD medication doesn't work. I can't sleep. I can't, uh, my math ability has just gone to hell. I can't calculate the tip on a check. Um, and so for those women, if you can find a doctor who will do it, um, uh, hormone replacement uh, therapy um, mm. works wonders. And again, mm-hmm. you can do it at very low levels. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, those, are the, those are the two places where you just sort of suddenly see it not work. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a comment on long acting versus short acting, and it's actually come through uh, 
twice. The the first was with the uh, pregnant or breastfeeding, and I think you answered that, but if you have any more uh, comments related specifically to would short-acting stimulants be a better choice than long-acting while pregnant or breastfeeding, uh, the other is related to your comment earlier in the show on sleep. Uh, would you normally recommend a long-acting or short-acting stimulant for someone to take at night for sleep? I always, doesn't matter what time of day it is, I always recommend extended-release medications. Um, if, if you can get them and the insurance company is in the slightest bit cooperative, always take extended-release. Um, Immediate-release products are a false economy. Um, and again, there have been dozens of studies on this, that if somebody is taking immediate release medication, they'll get the first pill of the day in pretty regularly. But the chances of forgetting the pills for the rest of the day oh, run somewhere around 90%. Yeah. Oh, easily. Easy. I see it in my coaching clients all right. the time. The medication yeah. doesn't yeah. get in. It's... Yeah, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, why, yeah. why bother? So for my patients, mm -hmm. it's extended release, extended release. Um, it's convenient. It makes sure the medication gets in. They're smoother, both in onset and offset. Uh, you don't usually see the crash at the end the way you do with immediate release products. Um, so there's there's just no comparison. That's amazing. I, wow, I have a feeling so that the people listening to the show are going to have the best night of sleep of their lives uh, tonight. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Try that no risk trial nap after lunch. <laughs> Make sure that yep. works. No risk trial nap after yeah, lunch. I, I love it. I don't want to nasty emails tomorrow morning. <laughs> emails coming your way. Hey, everybody, Bill's retired. Leave him alone. <laughs> So at the beginning of the show, you were talking about extending your research with RSD, you. and you need some help right. doing that, right? Um, we're, we're doing the first study to validate the existence that, yes, uh, rejection sensitivity uh, disorder is a thing. It really does exist, that it's highly associated with ADHD. Uh, and so we need uh, research subjects. Uh, both people who have ADHD and people who don't have ADHD um, for the control group. So mm -hmm. uh, if people would like to contribute 20 minutes of their lives to be subjects in, in this uh, very first piece of research, um, just you have to be over the age of 18 and your ADHD has to be clinician um, diagnosed. You can't have done it on your own type of thing, but a physician somewhere has to have made the diagnosis. Um, just send it to my email and it's, it gets something to write this down. It's not hard, but uh, I would forget it. It's Bill <laughs> Dodson, D-O-D-S-O-N, 19 at Gmail. And we'll put it in the show notes too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Bill, Bill yes. Dodson, 19 at Gmail. Um, and then I send them on to somebody else and they will give you a call and have you uh, fill out the checklist and things like that. Fantastic. And what are the criteria for people that don't have ADHD? Were you looking for yeah, those people too? Anybody. Um, anyone. Um, okay. The criteria is don't have ADHD. ADHD. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, I don't. So I can yeah. be that. I can be one of those people that help you on the non ADHD side. 
<laughs> All right. That'll be in the show notes, everybody. Take a look out. Contribute to this study. If that if that conversation uh, that we had introducing R R RSD to you uh, meant anything to you and your relationship with ADHD, uh, help the cause. Uh, join uh, Bill in this research. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, as always... Uh, you're an amazing resource. Thanks so much for your and thank you so much levying your your weight <laughs> here. It's been really really great. And where would you do you want people to go anywhere to learn anything? You're retired. You take all your everything offline. You've got nothing to plug. What are you What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing right now? Uh, I'm doing two things. Um, one of them is trying to write that book that doesn't exist. Uh, a book for both. Um, uh, people who have ADHD and their clinicians that just walk people through. This is how you get a good result with ADHD medications. This is why the uh, so many of the non-medication-based therapies fail. Uh, there's a good reason for that, and so that you can know which ones to put your time and money into, and which ones not to do that with. So uh, mm -hmm. I write very slowly but it, it's almost done. Uh, and the other um, part of my time is I work with homeless adolescents in downtown Denver. About 80% mm. of homeless people have ADHD. Um, yeah, I can and, see that. Yeah. So again, the ADHD is not a benign condition. Mm -mm. Um, mm -mm. I, a couple of months ago, I had a, a colleague talk about the fact that he thought that ADHD was an optional disorder, that it was optional whether you looked for it, and if you found it, it was Ugh. optional whether you treated it or not. Uh, oh, and boy. I, I, I refrained from choking him. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, <laughs> had to have taken some self-control uh, not to, but, <laughs> yeah. But um, we, we did a little continued medical education right there on the spot. Oh, I'm but sure. There, there are yeah. a lot of docs out there that are like that. Uh, uh, Medscape yeah. did a study a couple of years ago. 46% uh, of practicing physicians didn't think that ADHD existed. It's crazy. That's a, it's, it's crazy. It's well, a disappointing number. It wow. is. It is. And I tell people when I talk to clients and we've done this on the show too, you know, if you don't, if you, if something's not right, if it's not sitting with you right on that first visit or with your doctor, get a different one. Get a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you coming and we appreciate all the work and everything you've done in the ADHD community. And uh, we uh, just, I look forward to the book and the research on RSD and, and going to keep learning from everything else you've done in the past too. <laughs> so I, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And we appreciate all of you downloading and listening to this show. Thank you for your time and attention. Don't forget, if you have something to contribute to the conversation, head over to the Show Talk channel in the Discord server. That's where we'll be. You can join us right there by becoming a supporting member at the deluxe level. On behalf of Nikki Kinzer and Dr. Bill Dodson, I'm Pete Wright. We'll see you right here next week on Taking Control, the ADHD podcast. Mm -hmm.